Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimpera, host of the Public Policy Channel, and today I am very pleased to welcome Pavlina Chernova, who is the author of The Case for a Job Guarantee from Polity Press. Pavlina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Uh, so before we talk about the book, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and how you came to this particular project. Yes, sure. Thank you. I am a, a macroeconomist by training. I uh, teach economics at Bard College, and I'm a research scholar at the Levy Economics Institute. But uh, my very early research interests were in macroeconomic policies, economic instability. And I uh, research in a field called modern monetary theory. And uh, my initial um, research interests were how to employ the power of the public purse more effectively for macroeconomic stabilization. And um, at, early on, it became kind of apparent to me that unemployment is, a, is kind of this natural, seemingly natural force in the economy or assumed to be a natural force of the economy that attempts to stabilize um, macroeconomic conditions, but there are better ways. We could just employ the unemployed. So I, I started from the big bird's eye view picture on what unemployment is, or what it does to the economic conditions. And then I moved down to this, on this path of uh, figuring out what would be some good alternatives. And the job guarantee was uh, was uh, kind of the, the the solution to which this research led me. Uh, perfect. So why don't we why don't we start there? So when what do you mean by a federal job guarantee? What does that look like, and and how would you imagine that playing out in the world? Yeah, federal job guarantee is simply a public option for jobs. Imagine a scenario where if somebody loses their job and they're looking and they're sending resumes and knocking on doors and unable to find employment, they can go to the unemployment office and they can be assured that they can walk out with at a minimum living wage job option. So the way it's normally conceived of is as they, as a federally funded but locally administered uh, public service employment opportunity. So you could think of it as kind of a revitalized public service employment. You can think of it as a, uh, as a program that resembles uh, the New Deal blueprint of the FDR, but it is adapted for the modern day. The basic idea here is that we we have unemployment as a signature of the, the economy and folks are struggling. Uh, unemployment brings very large, I think largely unaccounted for costs, both at the macroeconomic level, at the social level, at the public health level. Um, these are costs that are borne widely and there just is a better way there's just is a better way to design policy, and that would be by directly employing the unemployed in decent public service work. So I'm going to uh, uh, pick up on on something you just made reference to, and that is the the, the costs of unemployment under the current system. Can you walk listeners through? Because I mean, I think some of it is is less obvious and intuitive to people than other. What both maybe the short term and long term consequences of unemployment are, and how that plays uh, uh, how that plays out across different groups and different sectors of the economy. Yes, happily, and the context for for this discussion is the following. I mean, even if you ask the layperson who doesn't read a lot of economic literature. You know, I think most people don't pause to interrogate this idea that unemployment is 
uh, is avoidable, in fact. You know, most of us probably will say, well, yeah, you know, unemployment happens, you know, people lose their jobs, there will be various explanations why that might happen. And I, you know, with this book, I want really, you know, folks to pause and, and question this, this, the, the nature of unemployment, whether it's really natural and unavoidable. But the second piece of context, uh, you know, from, uh, that, that's important here is that macroeconomists and economists actually reproduce this, this idea that uh, unemployment is natural. And in fact, there's some sort of level of, of unemployment that would be quote unquote optimal. Um, economists have jargon for this. It's called the NIRO, the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And what is important to note here is that we actually design policies around this positive level of unemployment. So there's there's a, a concept that, you know, 5 million people is sort of the optimal that we, we would desire. And if for, for any reason the economy is producing a lot more jobs and pushing the unemployment rate below this natural level, then we might see some other consequences like inflation, wage inflation, price inflation that are undesirable. And thus we have to step on the brakes and policymakers need to remove whatever stimulus they have provided to the economy. So you see, it's a very odd paradigm where we are actually saying, you know, 5% of folks were looking for work should not be able to find it. And we don't do that for any other policy. We don't say homelessness is natural and 5% of people should not be able to find homes, right? We, we understand there are difficulties with securing, you know, guaranteeing homes for all, although I think these are not insurmountable, but we don't design policy around some positive level of homelessness, but we do that for unemployment. And so on to your point. Actually, before very- you do that, let me back you up one more one more second, because it, it one of the things that, that you point out that, again, I think people who pay close attention to this may not, not realize is that part of the logic that economists in the Federal Reserve Bank use as to this natural non-zero rate is the fear that absent that we will have uh, inflation will take over the economy and, and, and horrible things happen. But you argue that that there is no actually sort of credible, reliable theory of inflation that sits at the heart of that. Is that a fair characterization of your position? Yes, that's absolutely correct. And I think that there is a little bit of a shift at the Fed. Before COVID, before the pandemic, there was still an active conversation about where is that natural level. And while uh, the Fed Chairman Powell had said, look, we really need to know where that level is. At the same time, he conceded that relationship is broken. It, in my view, it, it was never a robust relationship between unemployment and inflation. We can go much lower, even though unemployment was you know, historically low. It was widely understood or you know, folks were beginning to understand that the labor market slack uh, was big and we could go even lower. And no inflation is on the horizon. But look what, what this natural rate hypothesis is saying. It is saying that if too many people have employment, they might actually make demands for better working conditions. They might actually <laughs> ask for higher wages. And this is the evil that we want to prevent, to prevent inflation that might come from higher wage demands. And, and that, to me, is not only 
macroeconomically unsound, but it's also a, you know, a morally bankrupt macroeconomic model. We can, we can create a good full employment policy that is anti-cyclical, that does not generate undesirable inflation and still allow people to, li- to earn a decent living. And that's what the job guarantee does. And, you know, maybe before I explain that mechanism, I want to return to the, to the social costs. Yes. Because if, you know, if macroeconomists were accounting for these costs of unemployment, perhaps this idea of the natural rate won't survive very long because we have financial and non-financial real uh, costs that are uh, very large that are related to unemployment. And so we can just start with the public health literature, for example, where uh, which has documented quite well how unemployment makes people sicker, weaker, more vulnerable. They have more physical and mental problems. They go to the doctor more frequently. They spend more medication. They lose their social contacts, the very contacts on which they rely on to then find new employment, if you will. Um, And the costs are not just for the unemployed in terms of lost income or lost opportunity. Those costs um, seem to ripple through their families. They are um, their costs that children bear in terms of poor uh, educational outcomes, health outcomes, labor market outcomes, spouses also suffer as a consequence. And, and then we have this old, you know, widespread malaise and devastation in communities. We know what communities look like that suffer mass unemployment. And even in the best of times, there are pockets in the country that are plagued with double-digit depression-level unemployment, and that robs those communities of tax revenue, that puts stretches public resources... I can go on and on and on. And if we just were to add up all of that, uh, and we add it up on the global scale, we see that uh, we are basically sustaining this kind of paradigm of neglect, of um, you know, public squalor, if you will. And uh, you know, people are uh, require perhaps guarantees and protection more than anything else in the economy. And so, the job guarantee is that very first step. It's a safety net that says, if you need a living wage job, a good, decent living wage job, we will provide it. There is plenty of work that needs to be done in the public service, neglected um, public service areas. We can match those needs with uh, people who need employment opportunities, provide on-the-job training, allow you to transition to, transition to other better-paid work uh, as needed. So I want us to, uh, to talk uh, about the the objections that people lodge to this. But before we do that, I want to uh, ask if you would talk about how you think about a jobs guarantee uh, in comparison to another proposal that we've heard a little bit more about of late, a uh, universal basic income. Why do you think a jobs guarantee is a better approach? Or do well, you? I shouldn't put words in your mouth. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, I... I do consider the job guarantee a better approach than a universal living income for all, irrespective of their uh, income, for example. Um, I think that they are policies that can work together and a form of basic income will be necessary, even if you have a jobs guarantee, because the way we provision for society is, is in multiple ways. There are folks that cannot work, will not work, and um, for various reasons, and they will need adequate support. 
But what we notice, even with, with basic income experiments around the world, what we notice is that people still seek work. They still need jobs and well-paying jobs, and they are not able to find them. And so the job guarantee actually fixes that macroeconomic problem that even in the best economy, in the best of times, there's shortage of jobs. And so if somebody needs work, um, they, they can find it through the job guarantee. While basic income might provide um, some security and it might be sort of the morally correct thing to do, it, um, it doesn't really attend to these other costs that are um, associated with, with unemployment. And as I was enumerating them a moment ago, the vast majority of those costs are non-monetary. You know, the psychological effect, the health effects, you know, the, of just being isolated, of not being connected to community, of not uh, finding useful uh, work and recognizing the dignity of work and all of that. Like they are uh, non-pecuniary costs that are very large. So basic income would, would maybe help one dimension of that economic distress, but not really the participation dimension. And so... The job guarantee also is is uh, a program that empowers people at a different level. It allows them to participate in the creation of community-based projects, if you will, on organizing our social economic life at the local level through um, participatory, participatory models of organization. That's the idea behind this particular proposal. And it empowers working people in a different way. When you're working for an employer that um, pays poverty wages, that harasses you, that discriminates, you have the option to say no. You have the option to leave. And while basic income may allow you to do that as well, it's a whole different kind of dynamic if you have an option of a good, decent job than if you don't know if one such job will be around the corner. In other words, just the income alone doesn't quite provide the same sort of um, safety net for working people at, at the bottom because the job guarantee is the, that standard of a wage that you can get elsewhere in the economy because it's guaranteed. So if, you know, McDonald's workers are uh, earning, you know, poverty minimum wages and they are striking because of harassment on the workplace Imagine how much more effective that uh, fight can be if people can leave and say there is a living wage job um, in the community. We don't have to put up with these kind of working conditions. So, so the most vulnerable workers who are at the sort of the bottom of the income distribution tend to gain the, the most from having a public option at living wages with basic guaranteed wage benefit package. So let, let's talk uh, about some of the the objections to this, and and you've just alluded to one of them. You've talked about the ways in which a living wage, and and in the book you talk about it as coming with access to healthcare and childcare uh, as important pieces of this. But of course, as you've just articulated, one of the things that this does is it increases the leverage and the power of workers over their employers. Uh, and would presumably put pressure on private sector wages that are paying anything below that living wage. Um, how, what is what is your best argument to people who worry about both of those things, the increased worker power and the wage inflation in particular? 
that you think might, if not persuade them, at least make the best case for why this is better than the alternative? Yeah, I mean, I think the current pandemic hopefully has revealed the many pathologies of the labor market. You know, folks uh, whom we now laud as essential workers you know, those were those were people that until yesterday were called unproductive, low skill, you know, yeah. but now they're essential. Mm-hmm. And we are finally seeing, I hope, really finally seeing the despicable conditions under which they work. And we also are seeing the disparities. Very often those are people of color, women, uh, low wage workers with temporary precarious employment in very unsafe working conditions. That has to change. And workers will never have uh, the truly power over their their working places if the threat of unemployment looms over them. That that structures so much of our labor markets. Whether who gets the jobs? Um, whether what kind of jobs they're going to be, how well paid will they be? And so we un, unemployment has has been widely recognized as a very effective tool um, for uh, firms that firms can wield over their workers. Now uh, is is worker power such a terrible thing? I I would say quite the <laughs> contrary. We need something. Um, labor laws are very good and very important. Bargaining power is also very good. But without that absolute security that a good job is available on the ready, um, they are not quite stable. Even the minimum wage is not tr- a true minimum wage when you're seeking a minimum wage job and not being able to find it. That, for you, the job... The wage is zero, right? If, if you cannot secure a minimum wage job, even then, you know, essentially, the you know, your minimum wage is zero. So the, so the job guarantee will kind of lift this floor. The second question was about wage inflation. Now, here's what the job guarantee does. It does lift the bottom, but it doesn't cause a permanent wage inflation and permanent increase in prices. We do want to raise standards of living. We want to raise the floor and, in effect, we do want to say that poverty-paying employers uh, should be incentivized or there has to be some competition for them, right? That uh, we don't want to use unemployment as um, as a force that retains their privilege to pay poverty-paying jobs. But how do we make sure that this is not an inflationary process? Well, if we raise the floor, what the job guarantee does is it first creates uh, a lot of economic activity. So it also contributes to economic growth. So you're not just increasing, um, uh, you're not just uh, increasing wages, but you're also increasing economic output. So it's a, both a demand and a supply policy, right? We're cr- producing useful value um, and expanding production. The second thing is that the job guarantee is anti-cyclical. Like this is a this is an important um, feature of this program because it's a safety net. People tap into the safety net when there are recessions, when there are crises, when people lose their jobs, and then they enter into stable public service employment. The spending on this program is the very stimulus that we need to kickstart the economic wheels and restore some sort of stability to uh, the private sector employment. As uh, as their sales are restored and profits return, then private sector naturally increases its its own hiring, and folks can then transition back into private sector jobs. So the program shrinks, and spending on the program shrinks automatically in in expansions. So you see, it is it's an anti cyclical stabilizer. 
that um, grows and shrinks uh, to counter inflationary or deflationary forces. And I also want to point out that that program is essentially how unemployment functions today. Like unemployment today is the counter cyclical stabilizer, but it grows and shrinks as the economy declines or expands. But it is a stable and more effective anti-cyclical stabilizer because it doesn't leave people in abject poverty and destitution. So one, I think one of the other concerns that that I'm sure you hear people raise to this is about is the question of administrative capacity, right? Does either the federal government or local and state governments have the capacity to manage this kind of, of right? Can can they put people into productive work that is not make work? These are, of course, concerns that were voiced throughout the 1930s and the range of New Deal programs. Uh, but also, you know, for me, it also raises the question. It's like the 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 and the counter cyclical virtue of it also for me raises questions about well we enter a period of recession are governments going to have productive projects ready to go if they in short order find themselves with some large number of new individuals demanding work how do you how do you imagine that piece of it functioning yes uh, the administrative Capacity question is probably the first one that people ask. Well, how are you going to do this? Can can we do this? So my my answer to this question is the following: um, We never say that administrative burden is the reason why we should not guarantee public education. I, we we just believe that it is better to have you know a high level of literacy and educated uh, young men and women than not. And so that's the comparison. The comparison is, do you want to have mass unemployment or do you want to have a policy of guaranteed employment? And so then the administrative capacity, you know, uh, will need to be put in place like we do with any other public policy priority. Is it so it's not a unique challenge to this policy, and I don't believe it should be the litmus test for its desirability. Surely we have to figure out the kinks. How would you organize it? In my proposal, I argue that you want to rely on the kind of institutions that already exist in communities. You can use um, the, you know, you could use community groups, even the nonprofit sector. You can use localities that know best their needs and their um, uh, and their resources to create these projects. In other words, uh, a bottom up is much more effective and robust and resilient policy than a top-down where federal officials come in and say, build a bridge. That is not what this proposal is about. Um, And there are lots of examples around the world that we can look to of these bottom-up participatory models. So what what I'm suggesting is that there is a lot of useful work already being done on the ground. There are environmental groups doing green work, public care work. Um, That needs to be scaled up because these are the sort of neglected areas. So we use what we the institutional capacity that we have on the ground, but we will have to build new one, no question. What about the counter-cyclical virtue? Like, can we can we come up with productive projects on the ready? Well, the first thing I want to say is that you know we got to expand the definition of productive. So, an environmental work might not have a commercial return, but it is sorely needed. We need to be able to do a lot of environmental remediation, care work. You know, if you organize care for the elderly on the basis of profit, you're going to find all sorts of, uh, you know, scenarios where firms cut corners, you know, they under-provision the care. The care uh, work has to be 
a public service provided again not for commercial return but for the for the social benefit that it yields so and we understand that there is such a thing as a broad public public purpose once we return to this way of thinking then i think the sky is the limit we start noticing all of these neglected areas in our social economic life and all of these uh, gaps in our communities that can be filled by you know putting the unemployed to work the other thing that i want to say is that Imagine if we had a job guarantee that was a permanent feature of our economy, and that would mean that we would have had some sort of infrastructure already in place for designing and proposing projects. How we we would have responded to COVID, how different our response would have been if we had that infrastructure. On the ready, we could have mobilized a lot of sanitation workers. On the ready, we could have mobilized folks um, to man the dispatch lines and the uh, phone lines and uh, attend to um, the elderly in isolation and maybe provide teacher assistance who are trying to run online courses for their children and our children. I mean, you just thinking creatively about um, about plugging in these gaps is possible with some sort of robust infrastructure and policy design in place. And no doubt, you just have to start somewhere. And uh, then you, we improve upon that infrastructure. And, and that all of that logic is, is part of why it is that, that you and others conceive this as an important piece of a Green New Deal, correct? Yes, there are several reasons for that. Um, the first is that I think that the green transition work has always been difficult because, of the, because it implies economic insecurity for a lot of people. Right. So if we're transitioning from fossil fuel jobs to green jobs, um, there was never really a clear articulation of how we would make sure that this transition can happen for all. Anyone can get a job in the new world. Now, the job guarantee was put in place in the Green New Deal resolution, I think, with that recognition that we will not leave anyone behind and there will be an employment safety net um, that to help with that transition. The other thing is that the job guarantee has always been green, even before the Green New Deal uh, captured sort of the imagination of the public. We have had many uh, projects that mimic the job guarantee, starting you know with uh, with FDR's um, conservation work and many others around the world. So, um, care and conservation is is a, a very natural place where we can employ a lot of unemployed people to, um, uh, to do public service. And also it's that little step that we can put in place in the industrial strategy of transforming the economy from a, you know, fossil fuels to green, green technique that ensures inclusion, that include ensures that whoever loses their job um, can find a good um, employment opportunity as they transition to other work. So I've got what I think, and you probably think is, is the least interesting question, but I suspect one that you get all the time. Uh, how are you going to pay for it? <laughs> yes. Well, actually <laughs> this, this question is, uh, has, has evolved in this, this kind of a phenomenal way in the last few years. It was always used as a as an objection, right? It's not even a question. It's an objection. When people say, how are you going to pay for it? They're, they're trying to say that somehow this policy priority is not as important as others. And what COVID, I think the financial crisis revealed, is that 
when there is a an objective, a goal, a policy priority, let's use the tax cuts that were passed by the Trump administration a couple of years ago, right? Whenever there is a consensus and a commitment to policy, the money is there. Why is the money there? It is because that is the nature of the public purse. We have what we what we call uh, monetary sovereignty. In other words, the United States has institutions that ensure that all government bills get paid. And that is true for many countries around the world, most countries around the world, that ministries of finance, central banks stand behind the public uh, stand behind to to pay all all bills and uh, behind public policies. So I think that how will you pay for it is uh, is I hope that's a question that uh, is not going to be as important going forward because we were able to pass overnight extraordinary budgets to deal with COVID to deal with financial crisis. So clearly we can pay for the job guarantee. But what I want to say and emphasize is that we are already paying for unemployment, that those costs are already there. And there is a simply a better way of mobilizing our public resources to deal with conservation, to you know, deal with creating some public value rather than paying to sustain communities in disrepair, uh, folks in unemployment. Um, and all of the environmental destruction. So the job guarantee is really a, a, a prevention policy. It's paying for preventing a lot of crises, preventing mass unemployment, just like it is a policy of preventing um, you know, problems like fires and floods. So it is uh, on the whole better bang for the buck, so to speak. You're listening to the New Books Network. We have been speaking with Pavlina Chernova, who is the author of The Case for a Job Guarantee. And you have just heard that case made. And I hope for uh, for for uh, both of our sake, you found that case persuasive. Uh, Pavlina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.